Thank you, Williams family. That was great. That was awesome. Good morning. Uh, In recent weeks, we have seen uh, people take up membership in the church, and I've heard of others who want to take up membership in the church. Additionally, last Sunday evening was our annual congregational meeting where we voted on elders and deacons and the leadership in the, in the church, uh, and that voting is reserved for members here at Jonestown Bible Church. And so all of this has interested me in the topic of church membership, and the topic of church membership is very similar to the topic of the Trinity, in that there's not a verse that says it. There's no verse in Scripture that says the word Trinity, uh, and there's no verse in Scripture that talks specifically about church membership. But for both cases, I think a very strong argument can be made for both. So this message has to do with the local church and church membership. And I'm going to put it out there. Uh, I will probably step on every single one of your toes in this message. And I'm okay with that, so I hope you're okay with it too. But our working definition for this message, and it's a pretty basic definition, but I think it, it covers the points, for what a local church is, is the following. The local gathering of believers for fellowship, ministry, and worship together. I'll say that again. Our working definition of the local church is the local gathering of believers for fellowship, ministry, and worship together. And I want to make the distinction of the local church as opposed to the global church because the global church is every single believer on the planet. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a member of the global church, whether you're here in Jonestown, whether you're in South America, in Australia, playing the didgeridoo for a church service, uh, wherever you are, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are part of the global church. But as you can see, not every believer in Jesus Christ is part of this local church. We wouldn't be able to fit them all in here. Now, if you're not saved... If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are neither a member of the global church nor the local church, even if you come here every Sunday. And if you are not saved and you want to take up church membership, even if you were to get church membership, it would not save you. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, church membership won't save you. It won't become a ticket into heaven. Uh, The only way to join the global church and to join a local church is to believe in Jesus Christ. It is to recognize that your sins, your crimes against God, have separated you from him because he cannot stand to have your sin in his presence. And because of that, the punishment for your sin, for your crime, whether it's lying or anger or lust or jealousy, is eternal separation from him. And you can't pay the price to make good on that. But God loved you enough that he sent a Savior who did pay the price. That Savior's name is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He lived a perfect life. And he died on a cross for your sins and your crimes. And in shedding his blood on the cross and in taking the punishment that you deserved on himself, he paid what you owed. And when you trust that Savior, Jesus Christ... 
and what he did on the cross as enough to forgive you of your sins and to save you of your sins. When you make the decision to trust Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for salvation from sins, you are saved. And you become a member of the global church. And if you have just made that decision, I want to welcome you into the global church. And hopefully, I can encourage you to get into the local church as well. And if anything in that brief presentation was confusing, didn't make sense, you have questions, concerns, please don't leave without talking to me or Pastor Larry or Dale or one of the elders or deacons you saw up here or the person next to you in your pew uh, because it's incredibly important that you understand those things. But what I hope to do in this message is encourage those who do not have church membership with this church or with the church that you regularly attend to take it. And I hope to encourage those who are members, who have membership, to remember why membership is important. Every believer should openly identify with a local congregation of believers under the oversight of elders through church membership. Every believer should openly identify with a local congregation of believers under the oversight of elders through church membership. So let's talk about the local church first. Uh, the United States of America has always had a rather weak ecclesiology, uh, a rather weak understanding of the church, and this is for a number of reasons. One, if you look at our religious ancestors, they came here because they were fleeing church. Whether it was the Lutheran church or the Catholic church or the Anglican church, uh, those established churches were persecuting them, and that's why they ran. So our religious culture is, from the start, anti-established churches, because that's what drove us to America. You mix that with a culture in America that is fiercely independent, fiercely individualistic, and you have a combination that, for many, becoming a member of a church doesn't seem like a big deal that we have a rather weak understanding of the importance of church. Beyond this, and we actually this is a symptom of that, for decades, if not centuries, we've had this thing called church shopping, where you're going around from church to church trying to find the one that works for you, the one that meets your needs, the one that fulfills you, the one that you like the best, never mind uh, if it's a biblically teaching church or not, if it makes me feel good, and if it fulfills my emotional requirements, and I get to check my box and go out happy and fulfilled about how great I am, then I'll go to that church. Because for a lot of Americans, it's all about me. Because again, Americans are very self-centered. Or we have church shopping because we want to stay anonymous. We'll go through a cycle of churches so that nobody ever really gets to know us. We never really put our roots down anywhere. Nobody gets to know about who I am or who my family is or what I struggle with. Nobody's going to call me to higher ministry. Nobody's going to put more responsibility on me. I can show up, sit in the back. Once the service is over, leave immediately, check my box, and go along with the rest of my day. This results in a lot of Christians in America having a piecemeal understanding of the faith. They only know little bits and pieces from different messages. They haven't had a unified teaching under one shepherd. 
And it also results in a coldness towards the church, where we would rather spend our time doing something else. In fact, in the American mind, it's built into the language. For example, I know you've said it. I know I've said it. You go to Jonestown Bible Church. And if you don't, if you're visiting, you go to Lebanon Area Evangelical Free Church or Lebanon Valley Bible Church. I go to XYZ Church. From a biblical viewpoint, no, you don't. You have never and you will never go to church. That is an American viewpoint. From a biblical viewpoint, you are the church. And this is something that I want to get clear for us and try and break that misunderstanding. You have never once in your life gone to church. From a biblical standpoint, you are the church when you gather together with a local body of believers. Turn with me to Acts 5, verse 42. And I will let you know ahead of time that I'm going to be jumping all over the New Testament. I will try and jump slowly, but I can't promise that. So for those of you that are taking notes, uh, hopefully you'll catch the reference and hopefully I will go slow enough. But we're about to get into rapid fire mode here for the next couple of minutes. But we're going to start in Acts 5 verse 42. So verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house. They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Hopefully you found Acts 5.42, because now we're jumping to Colossians 4.15. So we're moving on. As a reminder, uh, Gentiles eat pork chops, if you're trying to remember where Colossians is. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Gentiles eat pork chops. Uh, At every opportunity, I will say that, because I think it's funny, and I think it works. But Colossians... Chapter 4, verse 15. So this would be the last one. This would be the chops. Chapter 4, verse 15. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. For the last passage we're going to jump to, it's Philemon. So keep going further in the New Testament. If you get to Hebrews, which we read from this morning, You've gone too far. But Philemon, verses 1 and 2, because Philemon only has one chapter, so it's very easy to miss, by the way. It's a very short book. But Philemon 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. The reason I point us to these verses is because the early church didn't have church, the building, as we know it. Uh, if you were blessed enough, the, and the Jews in your town largely converted to Christianity and you could use the synagogue, but it was still the synagogue. It was not called church. Or many congregations in major cities were blessed enough to have wealthier Christians in them who had homes big enough to facilitate everybody gathering together for church. But their house wasn't the church. The building didn't become the church. Additionally, if you didn't have a synagogue and you didn't have a house, and we have records of this from history, 
uh, you met in open fields or you met in catacombs or you met wherever you could and that was church. And it was church not because you were in a building. It was church because the local congregation of believers gathered together for fellowship, ministry, and for worship. If we, as a local congregation of believers, decided we didn't want to use this building anymore, and we all went to the lights property and we had church in a barn, we would still be having church, even though we're not in a church. And again, the English language makes this very hard to accurately get across. It can get confusing very quickly. This is a building that we as a local congregation of believers have agreed to meet and gather at. And we use it to facilitate our ministry, our worship, and our fellowship. But this building is not the church from a biblical perspective. You are. And the people around you are. I'm going to do this a few times during this lesson. Stop looking at me and start looking at all the people around you. Heads on a swivel, people. Let's go. Look at them. Make eye contact. Giggle. Right. Be awkward about it, but make eye contact. Look around. Right. The people you just looked at are the church. It's not the wall or the ceiling or this pulpit. It's a beautiful building. It's a great building for what we've gathered here to do, but the people in it are the church. And when I talk later about church membership and committing to the church, I'm talking about people. I am not talking about a building or a location. Now, the local church, you can know some things about it from Scripture. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, and then you have 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2. So this is where we learn what kind of people make up a local church. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, so again, he's writing to a local gathering of believers who could have been in a home, who could have been in a synagogue, who could have been meeting in a field. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours. The local church is comprised of people who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. The local church is made up of those who have been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is why earlier when I said, if you're not saved, you're not part of the global church or a local church. It's because you're not part of church from a biblical standpoint. Only believers in Jesus Christ, those who have been set apart and sanctified by Jesus Christ, can be part of the church. No matter if they attend here regularly or not, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not part of the church from a biblical standpoint. The local church is also called to gather together. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. We read it this morning. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. I think this is one of the most key passages on church in the entire New Testament. 
which is why I had, it, had us read it. But Hebrews 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This phrase, not forsaking our assembling together, cannot be clearer about how important it is to come to church. And again, when I say that, I don't mean come to this building. I mean come to gather with other believers in a single spot. Additionally, this verse destroys something that has cropped up uh, especially after COVID, and that's online church. I'm, I'm going to make this as clear as I can. Online church is an oxymoron. There is nothing church about online church. What you are doing is you are watching a video. That's it. And post-COVID, in America especially, online church has begun to take over actual church because it's just so much easier. It only takes half an hour out of my day. I don't even have to get dressed. I don't have the, have the kids get dressed. I can sleep in. I have so much more of my own time for myself. It's church shopping cranked up to 11 because if you don't like it, you can just choose a different video. And Hebrews 10, 23 to 25, rips that to shreds. You cannot have online church. Church is where we gather together. But Hebrews 10, 23, 25 doesn't just leave it at that. It's not that we all gather around, hold hands, and sing kumbaya. We have things to be doing. As Hebrews puts it, verse 24, And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, I've taught on this passage a few times over the years with the teens, and I always use the same illustration for this word, stimulate. Uh, for the kids in here, for those of you that may be in here, you've probably experienced this in your life. Uh, it's the sibling who has stuck their finger in your face, but they're not touching you, and they're going to let you know repeatedly that they are not touching you. I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm... The word stimulate here has that as an idea because what the sibling is doing by going, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, is stimulating you to action. Now, it's action of anger and frustration and annoyance, and it's action that leads probably to violence, but it is action nonetheless. Now, the church does not gather together so that we can have an annoying competition and a bare-knuckle brawl. We gather together so we can push each other, get each other moving towards love and good deeds so that we can encourage each other as the day is drawing near when Christ returns. So for those of you that are members here, here's a fun question to ask. If everyone in the church was doing as good a job of loving and, or of stimulating others to love and good deeds as you are, how would the church be doing? If everyone in the church was doing the same amount as you 
member of the church in stimulating one another to love and good deeds, how would the church be doing? As we'll see, you don't have a membership card so that when you get to heaven, you can redeem it for a free ice cream. You're supposed to be actively pushing each other to love and to good deeds, actively encouraging each other. Additionally, the local church is where believers discover and develop spiritual gifts to build up the church. Turn with me to Ephesians 4. Again, Gentiles eat pork chops. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I told you I'd say it every time, and I am not a liar. Ephesians 4, we're going to read verse 7, and then we're going to read verses 11 to 12. And this has to do with spiritual gifts. So Ephesians 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verses 11 and 12. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Paul, in this passage on spiritual gifts, makes two things clear. First, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have at least one spiritual gift. Most of us have more than one, because God is very gracious. For example, one of mine is preacher-teacher. You may be disagreeing with me right now, uh, being in the audience, but I do believe preacher-teacher is one of my gifts. But I don't have this gift, so I can come up here, put on a good show, and feel good about myself, and show how much better I am than you, because God gave me a specific gift he maybe didn't give you. No, spiritual gifts are designed to equip the saints and build the body. It's not a look at me, look how great I am. It's a you are a member of my church. I'm using this to serve you. That's the idea here with spiritual gifts. And this is something that the Corinthian church, which we looked at a little bit earlier, failed to get. They thought that if you had the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues, that you were somehow more spiritual, that God liked you more. And so they were causing problems in the church where everybody wanted to have prophecy or speaking in tongues because those were the good gifts. And if you ever see a charismatic service, you will see they are falling into the very same error. That everybody wants to speak in tongues, everybody wants to prophesy because that means God is more favorable to you or something like that. So that they can show off how much God loves them. That's not the point of spiritual gifts. No spiritual gift is better than the other. Paul lists quite a few of them here, and he lists them in other passages. But they are designed to equip the people around you and build up the church. Again, pause. Don't look at me. Heads on a swivel. Look at the people around you. Make eye contact with them. Heads on a swivel. There you go. I want to see heads turning. When Paul talks about equipping and building up, it's not the walls and the roof and the floor. It's the people around you that you are supposed to use your spiritual gifts for. It is where you learn what your spiritual gift is in the local church, and it is where they are developed. It is in the context of the local church that spiritual gifts are discovered and used, with the end result being a stronger church. Believers who gather together who are built up by each 
other. And so if we fail to regularly attend a church, we fail to regularly use the gift God has given us, which makes us bad stewards. And we will give an account to God for that. And if we fail to regularly attend a church, it also means that other people have less opportunities to use their gifts for us, to serve us. The local church is dearly important to the believer. This next one that the local church is for is probably going to cause some to be uncomfortable, and that's okay, because the local church is also for correcting sin and error. What I'm going to push for in this point is that you should not be anonymous in your local church. And by anonymous, yeah, people might know your name, might know your kid's name, might know what you do for a living, but they don't really know you. That is very bad to have in a local church. Think of it this way. When you wanted to get to know your spouse better, you could either have anonymity with that person or you could have intimacy with that person, a greater relationship with that person. You chose the intimacy because you thought it was better than the anonymity. It was worth it to get to know this person more even if that meant they got to know me more and they saw the ugly parts. In the local church, we want to give up the anonymity for the intimacy so that those around us know us better because it's so much better that way than it is to be anonymous. Turn with me to Galatians. Galatians 6. We're only going one book away. Galatians 6 verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, so even if somebody is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We are called to restore a brother in sin. This word restore, and for those of you that like to work on vehicles, you will immediately understand what this word means. This word restore means to replace a part or put together what is torn or broken. Quite recently, uh, my car had a part replaced because it wasn't working well. And the longer that busted part was in my car, the greater risk I had of my car getting worse and worse and worse. And thankfully, it's been restored. It's been repaired. And because of that, it now functions very well. It does what it's supposed to do. And I think of those TV shows where guys have a garage and they bring in this beat-up junker and they go through the lengthy process of restoring it and it goes from something that's not street legal, can't drive on its own, to doing what it's designed to do. Drive. And in a lot of cases on these shows, drive very fast and drive very loud. But it's been restored. That's what we're called to do, is that when a brother or sister is caught in sin, we restore them with gentleness, and we bear their burdens. You can't do that unless you know somebody is caught in a trespass or has a burden to bear. And again, this goes counterculture to America, where I'm going to do it on my own, and I don't need anybody's help, and I'm not going to ask for help, 
because I want to do it on my own. Individualism to the local church in the New Testament was a foreign concept. If you have a burden, you should tell other people in the church about it. You do not have to go it alone. Not from a sense of fear, not from a sense of pride. In fact, we're called to bear one another's burdens, which means people should know so that they can bear it with you. And if we're caught in a sin, people should know you well enough to know that so they can correct that. James 5, 19 to 20, we're not going to turn there, but James talks about turning back a brother, which is similar to the word restore. And James frames it as a saving act because there are some brothers and sisters who are so far in error they're not saved. A great example of this, I think, is Jehovah's Witnesses. They claim to be Christians, but if you look at their theology, they're in so much error they're not even saved. There is the risk you run of being in so much error that you've missed salvation and that you are in risk of death. When a brother turns one back, that is a saving act. But to turn someone back, we first have to know where they're going, that they're going off. And in more extreme circumstances, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians 3. We are called to withdraw from a brother. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. So you have a bunch of teas after the Gentiles eating the pork chops. First uh, Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, in other words, if anyone is in disobedience to the word of God, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet... Do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. There are two verbs in verse 14. The active one is to withdraw. With the idea being is that if there is a brother or sister in Christ in your local congregation who is living in open disobedience to the word of God, you do not fellowship with them. You withdraw your fellowship with them. That is the only active verb in verse 14. When it talks about them feeling shame... That is not us going, you're disgusting, you're despicable, I can't believe you're living like this, how could you do this? You should be disgusted and ashamed of yourself. That's not our job. Our job is to withdraw from them and to admonish them as a brother. That word admonish means to warn or counsel. We don't treat them like an enemy, but we warn them like a brother, but we withdraw fellowship because they're living in open disobedience to the word. And this is more to protect ourselves. But the idea is when your local body, the people around you, all withdraw from you, that is going to make you ashamed. The person becomes ashamed of themselves, not the church making them ashamed by telling them how bad and evil they are. And the whole point is to restore them in gentleness. The whole point is to bring that brother or sister back to Christ. 
All of these things that we've looked at here are for all of us, not pastors, not elders, not deacons. It is for every believer in a local church. It is the job of the local church to restore one in gentleness, to bear each other's burdens. It is the job of the local church, if they persist in their disobedience, to withdraw from them, but warn them lovingly as a brother so that they stop disobeying the word of God and come back into fellowship with us. And that is something that can be very, very hard to do. But it is something we as the church are called to do because sin is way more serious than we as human beings often think of it. So we're called to correct sin and error. Additionally, the local church has overseers. We call them elders. And a number of them were up here on the stage earlier. These men must meet certain requirements laid out in passages such as Titus 1, 6 to 9. They have to be above reproach, a faithful husband, a faithful father. They have to be sober, humble, patient, peaceable, hospitable, lovers of good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. They have to hold fast the word and they have to know it well enough that they can encourage the flock from it and that they can debate and argue from it against false teachers. It's a really long list of requirements. But that's because we want the best of the best to be our leaders. And for those of you that just got eldership last week, I hope that didn't scare you. Um, but that's part of the requirements for you. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. So we're going to go past James. If you get to 1 John like I just did, you've gone too far. But 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. Peter here writes to the elders of the church. Therefore, verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of or to the flock. Elders are commanded by God to shepherd the flock. Hebrews thirteen seventeen, which we won't look at, tells us that when they come face to face with the Lord, they will give an account to God for how they shepherded his flock. Shepherding, as the New Testament audience would understand it, involves a number of things. It involves watching over, it involves directing, and it involves caring for the flock. And that is also on an individual level. A shepherd at New Testament times, if one sheep was going off, would not consistently address the whole flock. And just watch as that sheep wanders off. The shepherd would go and get that one sheep and bring them back. You are the sheep. The elders are the shepherd. And they have the responsibility as your elders to go to you if you are going away from the flock and bring you back. And Hebrews thirteen seventeen tells us that you as the sheep have one job. To submit to their authority and to obey them which means the elders have every right. And in fact, they are responsible to get involved in your business because you're one of their sheep and they have to care for you and direct you. 
And right there, I can tell that quite a few of us chafed at me saying that because as Americans, we don't like people getting in our business. But that is exactly what an elder is called to do as your shepherd. That when we go off, they are to bring us back. Paul, when he speaks with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, tells them to be on guard for the flock because of savage wolves. A shepherd is responsible for the flock in his sheep. A shepherd, as the New Testament would understand it, would not be responsible for the sheep on the hill that's being attacked by wolves. The elders here at Jonestown Bible Church are responsible for the members of Jonestown Bible Church before the Lord. Now, they will love and care for you even if you are not a member of this church because that is the Christian thing to do and they are a godly example. But I firmly believe that you can, and I believe scripture makes the argument that when an elder stands before the Lord, he is going to be responsible for the members of his church because those are his sheep. They will not be responsible for Lebanon area evangelical free church members. They will not be responsible for Lebanon Valley Bible Church members. They will be responsible for Jonestown Bible Church members. That's their, that's who they're supposed to shepherd. So the local church is the local gathering of believers for fellowship, ministry, and worship together. We are the church, the people around you, and we are led by faithful men of God who have proven their faithfulness, and we call them elders. We gather together to push each other to love and good deeds, to encourage each other. It is within the context of our gathering that we discover what our spiritual gifts are, that we develop our spiritual gifts, and that we use them to equip and build each other up. And it is within the context of the local gathering of believers that we lovingly come alongside each other as brother and sister and correct sin and error. That is briefly, and I know you might be aghast that I dare to use that word, but briefly, what a local church is supposed to do. So the question is now, why would you not want to become a member of that? America, as I said before, has terrible ecclesiology. And on top of that, it has a culture that hates commitment. Don't like your wife? Divorce her. Don't want the baby? Abort it. Don't like your job? Quit. Don't like your church? Find a different one. America suffers deeply from a culture of no commitment. And that is completely foreign to the New Testament. In the New Testament, you were saved, you were baptized, and then you became a local member of that congregation. To put it another way, you made your salvation decision, you were saved. You made a public confession of that salvation decision in baptism. And then you made an ongoing declaration of that salvation decision by becoming a member of the church. You have decided to identify with a local gathering of believers in Jesus Christ who have been set apart by Jesus Christ and made holy by him. You have decided and openly identify with the elders and you put yourself under their authority and you are now committed to your church to build them up and to equip them with your gifts. You openly identify with the teachings and the positions of the local body. In regards to the congregation, 
what we're talking about here with commitment. And again, heads on a swivel. One more time. Look at the people around you. Smile, giggle, wave, whatever it takes to make you feel a little bit more comfortable. In regards to the people around you, church membership is a commitment to them. It is not a commitment to this stage and the ceiling and these walls and this floor. It is saying to the people around you, I am committed to you and you are committed to me. In regards to the elders, the ones who rule over the church as loving shepherds, they love and care for all who attend because it is the Christian character to do so, but they are going to be held responsible for the members of their church. And when you take up membership, you make it very clear to the elders who's in their flock and who is not. And that makes their job a little bit easier. Which means that when they stand before the Lord, they can have a little bit more confidence because they knew who, which sheep were theirs. But some of you may be saying, well, Nick, I, I've attended regularly my church for years and I've never become a member. Why do I need to take up membership? The answer is for the same reason that the guy who's been dating his girlfriend for 10 years needs to man up and marry her. Commitment. You need to show commitment to those around you, just like the boyfriend needs to show commitment to his girlfriend in marriage. And if you're resisting the idea of church membership, that may be an indication of a deeper heart problem. It may be fear. Fear that if you take that step of church membership and people find out who you really are, they'll reject you. And I want to comfort you in knowing that we're all sinners. We've all found out who each other really are, and we're all still here. And you joining us is not going to change that. It could be pride. I can handle it on my own. I can do it on my own. I don't need people telling me how to live my life. Uh, I can figure it all out on my own. I can bear this burden by myself. I don't need anybody but myself which is toxic to Christianity and your walk with the Lord. It could be laziness. It's just easier to stay uncommitted because then if things go south, I can just peace out and move to a different church and I won't have to worry about it anymore. Won't have to go through all the mess. Or it could be that you've just grown complacent. I don't want people pushing me. I do not want people encouraging me to be more like Jesus Christ, to serve more, to be more active in my church. I like where I am. I don't want to grow anymore. These may be the heart reasons why people resist church membership, but the New Testament, and I hope I've made this argument well enough, makes it very clear that church membership is important because you as a sheep are best cared for and best used in the flock, openly identifying with the church. The New Testament church is a church of commitment, even to the point of death, because for the first 300 years of Christianity, that was the risk you ran when you openly identified with the church, was that somebody wasn't going to like you, they were going to make up a charge about you, you were going to come before the courts, the courts would find out you're a Christian, and then they would feed you to wild animals or they would burn you on a stake. But the New Testament church is a church 
of commitment. Commitment to each other. The people around you that I've forced you to make eye contact with multiple times this sermon. And commitment to Jesus Christ and his work and his word. Every believer should openly identify with a local congregation of believers under the oversight of elders through church membership. For non-members, please look for one of the following individuals, and I'm going to ask them to stand. Pastor Larry, could you please stand? Dale Williams, could you please stand? Royal Diamond, could you please stand? And Cliff Berger, could you please stand? These are the elders of the church. These are the guys you want to go to if I have motivated you to take up church membership to get one of these. This is a church constitution. This will tell you what the positions of Jonestown Bible Church are. In them is also a church membership card where you can begin the process of becoming a member of the church. And gentlemen, you can sit. Thank you. This process gets rid of anonymity because you are going to go before the elders and have to give your testimony. They are going to get to know you and they're going to ask you questions. And that might be a little uncomfortable at first, but it's good because you'll give up that anonymity for intimacy with the church. And the end result, when the people who regularly attend this church or a different church make that commitment to their respective church is you have a healthier, stronger church. And again, when I say church, I don't mean the building. I mean the people around you. For members, I hope this has reminded you of why you became a member. It's not so, like I said earlier, you have, when you get to heaven, a ticket for a free ice cream or 10% off going to the temple like so many of our membership deals are anymore. It's not so that you get cool sales and discounts on the weekends. It's to show that you are committed to each other, to love them, to build them up, to encourage them, to push them. And when they are in sin, to lovingly correct them and bring them back into fellowship. That is the ideal picture of the New Testament church. It is a bunch of people gathering together in one place who have been saved by Jesus Christ and who want to grow more like Jesus Christ and who want to grow others more like Jesus Christ and want to use their time and their energy and their money to do that, to fellowship, to minister, and to worship together. And what I am calling you to do, if you are not a member, but you regularly attend, whether it's been for weeks, months, or years, is to take up church membership and to make that commitment. And what I am calling you to do, if you are already a member, is make membership attractive by pushing each other to love and to good deeds, by caring for each other and loving each other and correcting each other. Show them what they're missing and invite them to join in. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your church. I thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you saw the best way for your message of salvation in Jesus Christ to go forth was through sinful people. Sinful people who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. I thank you that in America, we are able to freely gather together to enjoy fellowship and ministry and worship together in church. 
I pray that this message has cut through a lot of the misconceptions, that we now understand that church isn't a building, but it's people. And it's the people around us. And I pray that it got through the level of commitment you're calling us to. Help those who have not yet committed to make that decision, to commit to the people around them, to love them and encourage them and to push them, to correct them, to serve them and to be served by them, to bear their burdens and have their burdens borne. I pray for those who are members that they would not lose sight of why they became members. Help them in their ministry to the flock to love and to push and to encourage and to correct. I pray for the elders. I thank you for their leadership. I thank you that we have godly men who meet these requirements, who can be our leaders and who we can trust in their wisdom. I pray that you would bless them in this ministry and that we as their flock would make it easier on them by identifying that we are of their flock and we are under their authority and their submission. Help them to lead and help them to serve. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.